Okay, let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Serlo, and uh, I am absolutely delighted to bring you uh, Mr. Andy Johnson from The Fried Egg. Uh, Today we're going to be airing the first half of my interview that I did with Andy, covering all sorts of fun stuff, and I really hope you guys enjoyed it. If you're into uh, high-level golf, whether it be professional or amateurs, and golf course architecture, Andy is an excellent man to talk to uh, regarding all that kind of stuff. So without any further delay, Andy Johnson from The Fried Egg on the Golf Guide Podcast. Well, uh, everybody, welcome back uh, to another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. I am honored uh, to have a repeat guest. Almost a year ago, uh, we had the Fried Eggs Andy Johnson on to talk a little bit about uh, the ranking systems that's used by Golf Digest and Golf Week when it comes to golf courses. And now, a year later, he is a full-fledged member of the golfing media, the Dos Equis man of golf course architecture, a fascinating, interesting human. Andy, have I blown you up too much? Most definitely. I'm just <laughs> just happy I got invited back on. <laughs> Quite boring, actually. So no, no, not at all, man. I, I happen to think uh, you are not only not boring, but uh, I I have really, really enjoyed all of the content and all of the stuff uh, that you've been doing at the Fried Egg. Um, you know, I, I've always been a big fan of golf course architecture, but I feel what you've done has really kind of obviously helped me learn more about something I was already passionate about, but has also been able to open the door for a lot of people that may not have realized how interesting golf course architecture is and given them a way to kind of get familiarized with the subject. And uh, it's just really, really cool, man. Thanks. That was uh, that was one of the goals was to make it more approachable. Yeah. No. And uh, And you have done that in spades. So. Um, for anybody that is interested in the last podcast that I did with Andy, that was episode 32, uh, which was, again, released about a year or so ago. So if you are interested in hearing our conversation uh, about golf ranking systems and you know with the first uh, little chat we had, I would encourage all of you uh, to go and listen to that. So, But for now, Andy, when, when I talked to you a year ago, you kind of the fried egg had been around for maybe about a year or so or maybe a little less, um, and now... You know, I look at your social media channels. I mean, you, your numbers have grown. You've you're going out. You're a full fledged member of the media, as I said before. Um, over the past year, h- how has your life changed the most? Um, I guess I've just gotten busier. <laughs> it's it's been about the same. It's been really cool. I, I um, it's it's been unbelievable. I, I mean, at the end of last year, I was thinking about all the cool stuff that happened at, you know, or this was around new year's. I was thinking about all the cool stuff that happened over the last year. And it was, uh, I mean, life has changed a little bit. So it's, it's been really fun. I, uh, you know, I, I love what I get to do now. I, I work my ass off. I work harder than I've ever worked before, (laughs) but it's, uh, it's really rewarding when it's, when it's your own thing and you're building, building your, uh, you know, your dream job. No, that's awesome, man. At least from my perspective, I I'm appreciative that uh, that you're working your ass off because it you know it, it's coming through, and I happen to really enjoy your stuff, and I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. So hopefully that makes uh, that makes all the hard work worth it. Um, at least on that perspective, 
you know, you're working harder than you ever have before. I mean, I've noticed on different social media channels and stuff like that, you're not only just writing about golf course architecture, but you're going out and covering golf tournaments, um, you know, between professional golf and kind of the golf course architecture side of the fried egg. How, how much time are you allocating to each one? And do you find one consuming significantly more time or, you know, uh, you know thoughts and stuff like that? Like, how, how do you how do you balance like there's two aspects of the fried egg between the professional game and the and, and the architecture side of things? Well, both are really important. Um, when, uh, when I started the fried egg, what I wanted to do was create a uh, website and golf outlet that, that curtailed to the busy professional. So with that being said, I mean, the most timely news and, and the, the root of the newsletter is mostly based around professional golf. And that's really important for the golf course architecture. Um, obviously, golf course architecture wasn't the, isn't the biggest niche in the world, but what I found is that by covering p- professional golf and relating architecture to the mainstream professional golf as much as possible, I've turned a lot of people into architecture fans. So they're both really important. I um, I play competitive golf, and I, I love watching the best players in the world play golf. Um, personally, I really love architecture. I think it's ex- extremely interesting and there's so much depth to it. Like, I mean, I learn so much every day just reading about architecture that, that, that stuff is really cool and, um, really fun to do, to write about. Like if I, I'd love to write more about it, it it's, it's time consuming, but, um, they're both so important. And I think having, <clears throat> The professional golf and when you can relate it to architecture is the best type of content because it it makes it so approachable and relatable for for every type of golf fan awesome do, do you notice i mean i'm sure you have access to like the the numbers of you know clicks and views you're getting is does one type of uh content seem to be more popular among your your fan base and your readers or like i said i mean obviously if you can combine the two you get the best of both worlds but have you noticed a, a bigger uh, reaction or more praise for one or the other? Um, I think, I think the architecture stuff is a little bit more shareable because there's less people out there doing it. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I think the, the PGA tour stuff is, I mean, it's, you have to have the PGA tour stuff because that's what the, the everyday golf fan wants. Um, the architecture stuff just be, I mean, a lot more people are doing it now than they were a year ago. Um, you started a trend. Yeah. That's the beauty (laughs) of the internet. If you do something well, everybody follows you. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So, so, um, I mean, if, if you, if you do the the architecture stuff so much more shareable because there's so little of it out there. Right. Now that's great. Um, at least like you said, I I think you're, you're spot on with the PGA tour stuff because you know, Good golfers, hacks alike. You know, everybody who's a golf fan tries to watch, uh, tries to watch the big boys. Uh, you know, whack it around on tour. Um, but for you, at least as a member of the media, do do you find that your golf viewing habits have changed? Where maybe you just used to watch and enjoy, but now that you're actually covering the sport and you're writing about it, do do you find yourself watching it in different ways or looking for different things than you used to? Um, so I, I watch way more professional golf than I used to, um, from a viewing perspective, I would say that 
I, I'm a contrarian, so I always am rooting <laughs> for like the Ted Potters of the world. I get, I get bored. I think, I think the best part of golf, it's just like architecture is variety. So I always like to watch where like the mainstream fan would love to watch, like, the, like love to watch JT or like just say Rory, DJ and, uh, JT play in a group. Like I like seeing a guy like, you know, like, uh, Brian Harmon in there. I like seeing guys like, you know, Jeff Ogilvie. I like to see variety and see players that that get it done differently than the formula of hit it really long and really straight. Like that's one of the things that I sorry. No, you're all good. Uh, that's one of the things that I really like about um, PGA Tour is watching different styles of play and seeing how. You know, Brian Gay shoots 68 versus Dustin Johnson shooting 68 when Brian Gay gives up, you know, six six clubs mm-hmm. from the fairway. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. So, I mean, I had another question, uh, you know, that I had written down in my notes. I was going to ask what your favorite part of the professional game was to follow, you know, you know, be like a stargazer with the Tigers and the DJs and the Spies versus up-and-comers. <clears throat> Obviously, you've already answered that question for me, but I guess the the follow-up to that would be, do you get more enjoyment out of watching kind of the the really young guns, the guys who are fighting for a spot on tour or try to keep their tour card, or kind of the guys, those middle-of-the-pack guys that don't find themselves winning a whole lot uh, but are always kind of in contention? I mean, what who are your kind of favorite subgroup of golfers on tour that you you find yourself most passionately following and kind of rooting for? Um, so, like, it's always nice to know and figure out, like, the young guys before they're big. Um and, you know, kind of say like, you know, this guy's going to be good and then watch him turn into being somebody really good. Um, so that's always fun. I I think the best way to watch golf is just to pick groups and follow them for 18 holes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, being, I'm a golf fan and like you go to these tournaments and you're in the media center with all these old school golf writers. But like what I find myself doing is watching a ton of golf. When I go to these events, which is tough because then it's, you know, 7 p.m. and I've been out all day and I need to write. Um, <laughs> but um, what I really like doing is if, is following a, a group for 18 holes and, and just kind of watching the ebbs and flows of a round. And you'll see guys shoot one under and you're like, God, man, that that round, if if he had gotten a good bounce here, could have been 66. And I think that's something that the everyday fan loses is is how slim the margin of error is out there. Like the difference between a T 12th in a tournament and a, and a win is like a couple bounces. And usually, I mean, we saw it last week with Bubba. He sunk that bunker shot. I mean, if, if he makes a bogey there, I I don't think he wins that tournament. Um, but he got a, got a good break and, and that's, that's the difference between winning and losing. And it, and it always drives me nuts as, when people talk about like, oh, that guy choked. It's like, you know, that's a, that's just a bad, lazy take. It's like, you you know, when these guys are in the moment, like the, the margin between playing golf that wins and playing golf that contends is, is like the slimmest margin out there. And even like the difference between being on the cut line and being in contention for these guys is like, it's so, so small. I mean, it's just like, going from playing really great golf to like above average golf puts you on the cut line. 
Yeah, totally. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit of a, a conversation I had with uh, a buddy of mine, Ben Peters, who, who's been a guest a couple times on the podcast. And it, it was kind of, you know, it's tough. It seemed tough for amateur golfers to recognize how massive like a fraction of a stroke is when you get to the professional game. Like, you know, he, he was talking about how once you get into that scratch territory, you know, it becomes that much more difficult to lower your handicap, right? Like it, there's a difference between a 10 handicap and a 20 handicap. Well, that 10 stroke difference basically is like the same thing, but only with like a third of a stroke once you get into like the plus two, plus three, plus four category. And you have all these guys on the PGA Tour, you know, I mean, Again, you would know better than I do, but these are all the best guys in the world. And for me, it sometimes frustrates me how people talk about, oh, that guy shouldn't be on tour. I'm like, man, every guy on the Web.com tour, every guy on the PGA tour is so much better than the very best golfer that you've ever seen outside of a PGA tour event. I don't think you understand how good the worst guy is on tour. Like any of these guys (laughs) could win. It's just obviously the very, very best ones are just extra elite um i i don't know would, would you tend to agree with that or does that seem like it's oversimplifying it yeah no no uh, ben ben's a great player he's a great mid-am player um but like yeah the the guys on tour uh, i was talking to a tour pro the other day and, and it's like being like the best player at, at a club or at a course like if i lose to somebody they're always going to remember that for the rest of their life. They aren't going to remember the hundred other times they beat them. It's the same. It's even worse for a tour pro. Like, you know, a tour pro might like might lose to a a really great amateur one time, but like over the course of a period of time, like they are going to kill them. Um, my analogy for tour pros versus like really, you know, we'll just say the best player at your club versus a tour pro is like, so like the, the best player at your club is a snorkeler. Like they're, they're fine. They can go underwater. They can go under par, but then once like three or four under hits, like they're, they've, they've gone past the depth of their snorkeling tube and water just starts gushing in there and they got to come up for air. So they're going to come back up versus a tour pros, like a, like a nuclear sub, they get like three or four under and then like they just keep going further and further down. Like they, they aren't, they don't have when they get under par, they keep going versus like the really great player at your club, like gets under par and they're like, Oh, you know, I'm three under, I better, better chill out and really protect this versus the tour player just like keeps going. That is honestly the best golf analogy I have ever had the pleasure of recording on this podcast. Andy, that was fantastic. Is, did you just come up with that off the top of your head? No, I, okay. I thought about it. I, I, <laughs> That's so good. I, I played with my buddy who's on the web tour and Dude, that, that is unbelievably <laughs> I, good. I played so good. I was hitting every shot, but I had just had some bad bogeys. I shot like I shot 70 or 71. It was a windy day. And, uh, and my buddy, he shot 66 with a double bogey. And I was like, huh. Jesus Christ, like <laughs> just a different game. Like he made a double bogey and shot 66. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm like, I played great and shot like 70 and it's just like, they're just better at, it's not like a huge difference. So they're just better at everything. Everything. Yeah. It, it, I think the other thing that's crazy is I, I always kind of wonder what those, like the big dogs on the PGA tour, what they would do on people's home tracks, you know, whether public, private, it doesn't really matter. Cause 
I mean, you see guys out there, you know, putting up scores in the low 60s on courses that have been set up to challenge and, and test the best players in the world. Whereas some guys are like, oh, yeah, this guy went out and shot 67 out at our course today. It's like, a, you know, two off the course record. It's like, dude, in those kinds of conditions, if a PGA Tour guy went out there, I mean, wouldn't they have like a 50-50 chance of breaking 60? Like, they're just that good, especially when you get, you know, kind of more friendly conditions like you would for the, for the amateur player? Or do you think I'm a little off base there? Um, I mean, I think you'll see like Boise, Idaho is a really good barometer mm-hmm. um, because that's like kind of like a that's a course you just find like your random course and you see guys breaking. I mean, I don't I think you'll ju- you just see a lot of 66s. You wouldn't see casual like, 66s. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the thing is like, it, you know, shooting in the 50s anywhere is so, so hard. Like going shooting ten under anywhere is tough, and like you'd see a lot of ten unders at at like a your local sixty five hundred yard course. But like the other thing to remember is like agronomy. Like if the greens are bumpy, like there's things. But if they played it often, it, you just see a low scoring average. I still think like like making like fourteen birdies in a round is is really hard anywhere. Yeah, and I think another thing that's really impressive about the PGA Tour guys is that their game travels. Like, I know a lot of, uh, like, club, you know, not club pros, but also, uh, you know, kind of uh, guys who, you know, play at a club or play at a course, you know, they get really good, and they can, they can go low. They'll shoot 66s, 67s, 68s, but as soon as they leave their home course, all of a sudden they're, they are struggling to break par, and I think that's pretty normal, and I think it's, it's just a testament to how unbelievable these guys are. They can just go low anywhere. The, the, the site honestly doesn't matter. And th- that is one of the things that I find to be most impressive. Yeah, they're, they're really good at golf. <laughs> well said. <laughs> uh, well, going back to the you uh, cover in the game, man, um, as you said, like a lot of times you like to go follow those groups, you know, for 18 holes, kind of study the ebb and flow, if you will. Um, but then you got to go and write. But at the Friday, you know, you're not just doing writing, man. You're doing podcasting. Uh, you're doing some writing. You do... Uh, just a whole variety of stuff. Do you have a preference of or something that you enjoy most? I mean, I guess podcasting versus writing. Uh, do you have a preference? I guess, what do you feel that you're better at and what do you enjoy doing more? I, I don't think I'm very good at either. <laughs> I'm getting better at both. But uh, podcasting's, you know, it's the thing with podcast, like writing takes a lot of time, but it's pretty, like when you think about the whole task of writing, it's like you sit in a chair and write. You know, like it's not that hard when you think about it. Setting aside the time is the same way. It's like the same thing with like studying. Like the act of studying is really tough to get yourself to do. Mm-hmm. Like I'm the type of person I need like self-imposed deadlines, which is one of like the great things with my newsletter going out three days a week. Like I have to do it, mm-hmm. you know. So if if I didn't have that newsletter, I don't know. I would ha- I wouldn't have as much content and like I wouldn't write as much of, as I do, but um, then I mean podcasting is a whole different can of worms. Like you probably know, like audio quality. I mean, it, it is not easy, and it's not easy to do well. Like that's something I've had to learn so much about, and it's something I never expected to learn that much about interviewing people, like understanding how to interview people, trying to get your filler words out, like. I just use like um, it's <laughs> so difficult to to get better if, if you don't have a background in it and it makes you realize like how good the 
announcers on TV are, um, how good the writer, the really great writers are. I mean, there are some really great golf writers out there and you read their stuff. I read their stuff and I'm like, God, how do they do that so well? And just in general, even outside of golf, you start to appreciate the people that are really, really good at what they do. Yeah. hundred percent, man. And like anything, I always find it to be really fascinating to see like the guys that I look up to, you know, who, who did they look up to? Like, where are they getting their inspiration from? And even though you claim that you're, you know, not a great writer or podcaster, um, I, I certainly really enjoy uh, reading and, and listening to you. And then I guess that begs the question is what what golf writers do you find yourself gravitating to? Like what, who are some of the either, I guess, you know, new sources or writers that you respect most that you anytime they put any piece of content out, you, you make it a priority to go and read or listen to whatever they're doing. I mean, like Michael Bamberger is a big one. Uh, he's, he's just an unbelievable writer. Alan Shipnuck's a really great writer. And I mean, it's for me, so many of these guys I've read my whole life and as a golf fan, which is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Brendan Porath. You know what Brendan does? He writes for SB nation, which isn't known for that much golf, but he always brings a unique perspective. He writes a different story than what everybody else is writing, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, like outside of golf, like Zach Lowe, I like. I love, like love stuff. me some Zach Lowe, and and I mean that guy, I think is arguably the best sports writer in the in the world. So Zach Lowe is, is a big one that like I'm a huge basketball fan. Um, I don't get to watch it very much anymore, unfortunately, but. The uh, I still try and read as much of his stuff as I can. Um, then you know, I mean that. So Zach Lowe is kind of the guy that I would say, like outside outside of golf, like I mean, he's the guy that anytime he posts something, I I click and read. Honestly, man, that that makes me. You're putting a huge smile on my face. I, I'm a, a basketball junkie. Um, I, I love I've loved Zach Lowe. I mean, shoot. Starting when he was writing for Grantland and Bill Simmons, you know, several years ago, I kind of got obsessed just like you. And I, I guess, you know, he's got a really unique style of writing where he's really breaking stuff down. And I love how he's the first person I read where he's kind of, you know, putting little video snippets together to kind of complement all of his stuff. So you can kind of really see like the technical stuff that he's talking about when he's breaking down strategy. Is that something you've considered or tried to implement in your writing with a fried egg where if you're writing something and you're trying to explain something as it relates to strategy, you know, having those whole, you know, basically topo maps of the holes and different pinpoints is, was that kind of an inspiration for a lot of the stuff that you're doing, especially with the, uh, is it on the skillet where you kind of break down the strategy of a different hole around the country. Now, now that you've said Zach Lowe, I'm kind of starting to see some similarities. Would it be fair to attribute some of that to him? Yeah. I'd never thought about it, but yeah, I'd never thought about it, but yeah, I mean, it's like the, he, the way he explains like a offensive set and what he likes about, you know, the how this, you know, big, you know, say it's a LeBron, like last year, breaking down like a LeBron Kyrie pick and roll mm-hmm. and like what he loved about it and how it, you know, like he did, does that so well. Or when he's talking about like, you know, I love how, you know, the Serge Ibaka is switching on this high pick and roll. Like, I mean, he just what I love about Zach Lowe. And what I love loved about Grantland is that they answered questions that I wasn't smart enough to ever think about. 
Totally. And what I think the problem with so much of media uh, across the board is they answer questions that I don't even care about. Mm. Yeah. So when you when that's the recipe in my mind, especially it's not curtailing to the you know, I don't really care about curtailing to the mass public like I'm not going to be the all things to everybody. What I am going to be is is what I want to be, not am, but what I want to be is all things to the golf nerd, you know, and providing insights into things that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't look at. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, that's very well said. And honestly, man, I, again, I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, just blow you too hard on my own podcast, but I think you are uh, you are kind of filling that niche and you are doing exactly what you, uh, it sounds like you are setting out to do. Uh, with the fried egg. So that's that's a good thing, man, because a lot of the questions I hear you asking uh, different architects and people on the podcast are things I guess maybe I've thought about, but I've never actually put into a rational you know, thought and let alone said out loud. So uh, I, I always find that to be really, really interesting. Um, I have to go off on a little side tangent here real quick then. As a, as a Zach Lowe fan and a basketball fan, you are from Chicago. W- would that uh, qualify you as a Chicago Bulls fan? Huge. Used to be a season ticket holder. Oh, there we go. Uh, thought early thoughts on Larry Markkinen. Oh, he's a stud. He's, I, you know, that's a that's the thing that bugs me is like drafts. Like everybody's like, oh, you know, you got to take Malik Monk. You got like something I've I've kind of gotten over is like draft day like reactions mm-hmm. because like you never know what's going to happen and like I'm going to side with like the GM. For the most part, and like the Bulls, the Bulls front office has been a disaster. But like that's what they do for their job. Yes, you know, uh, <laughs> that's what their job is. Uh, so I could, I could not agree more, man. If they're if they want to pick a guy, like for the most part, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it some time. Like I'm not gonna instantly react and be like, "What the hell are they doing? They should be fired." Because one of the things that bugged me was the trade they made. They gave up like a mid round pick when I think. Like with that Jimmy Butler trade, I think they could have kept the mid round, the mid first round pick. Um, but like that's that's one thing that bugged me. But like for the most part, like you know, if you're, if they're gonna pick this guy, like you got to give him a chance. And like I remember Bill Simmons like just trashing the pick and like being like, "How do you not pick Malik Monk? Look at Malik Monk right now. Like Malik Monk is averaging like two point two points per game. Malik Laurie Monk is gonna, very very upset. He does not play in the Garden. Yeah." And then you got Laurie Markkinen, who's, you know, arguably a contender for rookie of the year. And it's like, you know, like you got to you got to let people play and see what they what they are. It's like the draft day reaction. Like it it is like, you know, it's so insignificant until people actually play the game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could not agree more. It's like, yo, these dudes get paid hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to make critical decisions about basketball. Somebody is willing to pay them because of their expertise in this. And you listen to two podcasts a week and you know more. Let's 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 just be real with ourselves. Although, yeah. I would argue Ryan McDonough, I do worry about him. The the Phoenix Suns do not do not seem to be going in a good direction and haven't been for a while. Uh all right, l- last thing on basketball then, then I'll jump back into golf. Uh I assume you listen to Zach Lowe's podcast, any other basketball podcasts or anything like that that you're into? Uh, yeah, I, I like, uh, I used to listen to way more. I, I like Bill Simmons. Um, sometimes, sometimes I, I, you know, I like, like his podcast. I, um, I listened to a lot of, uh, 
podcasts about like technology too, mm-hmm. like Andreessen Horowitz. Um, uh, but I would say I used to listen to like the dunked on basketball, but yeah. I, I just have time anymore. So, um, that so, one's fallen by the wayside. Sometimes Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue get a, almost a little too, like a little <laughs> too deep for me where I'm like, Whoa, I honestly don't, I, I understand that we like cap space, but I'm not quite sure I can dive that deep into the CBA. I, I just don't have the time. <laughs> That's a perfect example of like guys that have like found a niche yes. and like dug, really dug into it. Like they, you know, like the, the that podcast, like you're gonna walk away with like knowing so much. Yes. Yes, totally. And uh, yeah, they, they do a good job. So no, that's uh, that's really awesome, man. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear you're a basketball fan. Uh, honestly, man, I like where the Bulls are going. I, I, I think Chris Dunn has actually looked pretty good, other than when he hit his face on the hardwood for holding on to the rim a little too long. I think Chris Dunn's looked great. Larry Markkinen's exciting. It's got it's kind of nice to see Frank Hoiberg actually, you know, get a team that's actually kind of playing his style of basketball. It's, it's kind of refreshing. Yeah, it's a, like Hoiball has been <laughs> it's a. Like compared to where they were last year with Butler, Wade, and Rondo, where you knew that they had zero chance of winning uh, the championship, but they were okay. Like I much prefer having the young team that, like, you see some promise, like, and say, like, hey, if we if we get the top pick in the draft, like, all of a sudden this team is going to be pretty good and has like, you know, it's, it's a lot closer to a championship than having. Rondo, D. Wade, and and Jimmy Butler, you know, pound the ball into the ground. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I could not agree more. I think they're moving in the right direction, and uh, no, it'll, it'll be fun. The, the Bulls are really, really fun to watch right now. It's it's not translating to a lot of wins, but uh, as a guy whose team is almost so good that it it's kind of become boring now. It, it's kind of fun to see a young team like the Bulls kind of get scrappy and get after it. They're uh, they're pretty exciting. Um, yeah, it's it's it's. It's exciting. Well, hopefully we get a good pick. I, I watched the Illinois Michigan State game last night, and that kid from Michigan State, Jackson, mm-hmm. he's a stud. Yeah, dude. That's the, that's the one thing I will say is like as I'm working in golf, like my college basketball viewing is the one that has dipped most substantially over the past like three or four years. I used to, I used to watch a lot of college basketball, and it, I am borderline completely checked out now. I, I, I got to get back into it. Yeah, there's there's just not enough time in the day, man. No, no, there's not. All right. A quick word from our friends at Health IQ, a life insurance company for people that like to actually take care of themselves. What do you mean? Well, all right, let me give you a quick little example here. Uh, if you are a good driver, your auto insurance company is going to give you a break on your car insurance. You don't get in that many accidents. You don't cost them that much money. So they don't have to charge you a lot of money for your auto insurance. Well, Health IQ is taking the exact same approach to life insurance. Pretty much it goes down like this. If you're not a completely just awful piece of shit, Health IQ wants to help you save on your life insurance. If you're a healthy person, you like to walk when you play golf, you like to cycle, you like to run. If you do all that kind of stuff and you have some sort of evidence where you can share it with the guys at Health IQ, they are going to be able to save you some ducats on life insurance. Let's go with a couple of the facts here real quick. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance, and all of those savings are exclusive to Health IQ. So, to see if you qualify, qualify for lower rates on your life insurance, get your free quote today at healthiq.com 
slash golf guide or mention the promo code golf guide when you talk to a health IQ agent. One more time, that's healthiq.com slash golf guide. And now let's get back to Andy. But uh, speaking of time of the day, I don't want to waste too much of yours, Andy. So let, let's dive back into some golf here real quick. Um, all right. So before we did that, we were talking about which do you enjoy more, writing or podcasting? Um, I, I guess on the, the podcast side of things, um, if anybody is not familiar, uh, the Friday podcast, which Andy hosts, uh, are, are you trying to do like an episode every week, every other week? What's your, what, what's your goal in terms of, uh, get, getting episodes out? I, I'd say at least weekly, sometimes two a week. Um, some weeks I even three go up. It, it all depends. I mean, when I'm home, uh, and not traveling, I, I tend to record more podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, sometimes I, I'll record them and save them for, you know, a rainy day. But the, uh, like this week, I'll probably put a third one up. I had, I had two go out already. So it all depends. I, you know, it's, uh, keep them, keep them coming. What I, what I see is I have, you know, podcasts about different stuff. So different parts of the audience, uh, like other parts, you know, like uh, people like, uh, architecture. Some people like when I talk to tour pros, uh, some people like, when it's just uh, me and Kyle Nathan doing mailbags, mm-hmm. so it it all depends. No, that's awesome, man. And uh, I, for one, have really, really enjoyed. It. I mean, you have had some unbelievable guests, uh, at least over the past year. I know we, we talked a little about your podcast uh, when you came on, you know, last February. Because at that point, you know, I, I just listened to the David McClay Kid podcast and the Michael Clayton podcast. But since then, I mean, you've Obviously, it seems like you've got a great relationship with Tom Doak. You know, the Yoke with Doak is a is a phenomenal uh, little addition to the the Fried Egg podcast lineup. I loved Bill Core. Jeff Shackelford was great, uh, and honestly, my Brandel Chambly was secretly excellent. Much, much better than I anticipated that being. Um, so I, I don't know, man. I, I guess you know the, the first thing is with of all the different guests you've had the last year, how. How has it been reaching out to these people? Are you reaching out to them? Do some of them reach out to you? How how has that gone down? How have you been able to secure so many fantastic guests for the podcast? I, I mean, thankfully, they've been open to coming on. Um, for the most part, I reach out to them. Um, some people reach out to me. Um, and, uh, you know, you just try and find guys that are golf nerds. I mean, that's the key is finding junkies that – can talk. I mean, like, I think Brandel Champley is fantastic on a podcast because he doesn't have to shorten his thoughts on a subject. Like on TV, like he's got to cram whatever he thinks about something into 90 seconds and he doesn't get to fully explain mm-hmm. his stance on something. And I think that's something that makes him a little bit misunderstood and um, why he can be so polarizing. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he has strong opinions on stuff, but that that's one of the things I love about Brandel is like, everybody in golf is so afraid to like take an opinion on something and tiptoe around the subject. And it's, it's one of the more politically correct, um, sports out there in terms of like opinions. And and it it can border on being dull because everybody's afraid to say something that might offend somebody. But Brandel researches stuff. I mean, he rat, he has stats to back up his opinions. You might not always agree with them, but like at least he's taking a stance 
and putting something out there versus like, you know, a lot of people just kind of tiptoe around a subject. Yeah, I do. I could not agree more. I, I, I guess I didn't really have my own opinion on Brandel before I listened to the podcast. Obviously, you know, there's all the different beef that he's been in with like Billy Horschel and, you know, the other things like that. And I was like, ah, oh, this guy, maybe he's kind of an ass. His hair looks a little nice. Like, I don't, I don't really know. But as soon as I listened to that podcast, I was like, oh, this guy just has never, like you said, had the platform to actually share his complete thoughts. Dude, that guy is sharp as a tack. I, I, of all the podcasts, that's the one that I unexpectedly found myself enjoying uh, most. I mean, some of the other ones I, I love just as much. But the Brandle one, I wasn't sure if I was going to like it. But it was excellent. That, that, that was w- w- one of the best ones, I, or at least one of my favorites that you've done the last year. Mm-hmm. Which is really good. And so uh, did you find yourself, I guess I don't know what Brandle, but uh, I mean, you've had, like I said, some, some big guests on it. Do you ever find yourself getting a little nervous before you talk to them or kind of getting a, some butterflies in your stomach before you, you connect on the phone or something? I mean, a, a little bit. I, I, I was, I, we, I did the Brandle one in person, which was cool. I, I you know, getting to meet Brandle was cool. Yeah. Um, you get, I mean, you get a little nervous. If you don't get nervous, you don't care. It's like first tee of golf tournament. Mm-hmm. You're not nervous on it. You shouldn't be out there. Yeah. That's a very, very good point. Uh, which, uh, what, were there any guests that you had where, you know, you didn't really know what to expect and you came out of the conversation thinking to yourself, wow, that was amazing i th- that was an inc- that was incredible um kyle hegland and at sandhills was one of my favorite ones mm-hmm. i thought that was a really good podcast and what i liked about it is, is it's you know for the most part outside of like a small subset of of superintendents and extreme golf nerds nobody knew who this guy was and he ended up being one of the one of the best guests i mean he was his personality was just fantastic mm-hmm. i think sean tully up at the metal club like you find all the there's so many interesting people in golf and one of the things that's so cool about golf is like you know golf's played by whatever it is 25 million people in the world or in the world yeah and then you got PGA Tour fans is like 3 million like yeah. the NBA what we were just talking about maybe like maybe a couple million people play basketball regularly but then there's like hundreds of millions of fans so golf has like this inverse relationship that no other sport has where there's actually more people playing the sport than fans of the professional sport. So one of the cool things that goes along with that is that there's all kinds of like really interesting people in golf that have never, or that are, are not good golfers like, and that have these really fascinating stories, um, within the game, like Sean Tully, who probably knows more about Alistair McKenzie, um, than anybody in the world and you get this guy on the podcast and like, you know, he's nobody's beating down Sean Tully's door to, to interview him, but he's got a fascinating story and he can talk in at an expert level on so many subjects, whether it be, you know, golf course architecture, Alistair McKenzie or maintaining a golf course. Cause he's a, you know, one of the best superintendents around. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the cool things with golf is that there's all these really cool characters that, you really, I mean, there's endless people that are worthy of of coming on a podcast, and people will walk away being like, "Wow, that was a really fascinating conversation." Because there's just so many people in different walks of life in the game. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I, I enjoyed the hell out of the uh, you, Zach, and Sean 
uh, talking medical club and stuff like that. And it actually, I guess it brings up another question is, as somebody who's now seen a lot of the, you know, the world's best courses and has had a chance to talk to some uh, superintendents, architects alike, um, I, I'd be curious to hear your thought on, you know, agronomy and course conditions versus layout and design. Uh, how much, like, you know, say there's a whole pie, you know, there's 10 slices of pie. Uh, how much does each one deserve in order for a golf course to be great? Because do, do you think the design is much more important? Like, if you had a great golf course that was in absolutely shit shape versus an okay design golf course that, you know, but is taken really good care of, the, you know, the, the grounds crew has actually widened up the fairway so that they get an idea of, you know, what, what, what I guess what golfers should want in terms of width and, and strategy. But I don't know, is one more important to the other? that you, you found um so i'm like an optimist so i always look at things from like what something could be sure so i i tend to fall on like the architecture side more like uh like mediocre architecture bugs me more than mediocre conditioning but because a great architect a, a course that's great architecturally can and always you know, can always have the ability to be a great golf course, whether it's in bad or great condition. When it's in great condition, it's automatically like one of the best golf experiences. If it's in bad shape, it's still a good golf experience. It's just, it's almost like bittersweet where you're like, God, this place could be so good, but it's, it's, it's just not really where it should be. Or, uh, you know, a ground, uh, like from like a conditioning side, but like a, a average golf course from condi- from architecture standpoint like if it's in perfect shape like that's as good as it's ever going to be mm. and it's not that good you know yeah it's like like it's fun to play and everything but like there's it's courses that are average from an architectural standpoint i feel i find myself saying like you know what it's okay i'm i'm ready for this round to end <laughs> and courses that are really architecturally brilliant you get sad when they come to an end yes all right yeah i, I think that uh, i think that is perfectly fair well i you know that you you've provided me with an excellent excellent segue so i'm going to jump into this uh, this next little part here and that is uh, i i got to bring it up you were able to visit my neck of the woods recently and uh, when it comes to courses with some untapped potential uh, we have got quite a few of those around here. But before we get to those, uh, first of all, I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts on your, your recent Northern California golf trip. I mean, you got to play my you know personal favorite nine-hole golf course in the country, uh, along with a bunch of other great stuff. What? Uh, g- g- give me some of your thoughts, man. How'd, how'd your trip go? Um, I was exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd played like one round of golf in, in eight weeks, and I went out there with Zach Blair who plays on the tour and is like, you know, he is like the the biggest golf junkie I've ever met in my life. And we played 27 to 36 holes of golf every single day for like a week straight. And and I I mean, I I can't even explain how tired I was like (laughs) after like the second day and it just kept going. But we played some unbelievable golf courses. I mean, it was it was a spectacular trip and one of my favorite things about it was like it wasn't like we probably we could have played all exclusive clubs the whole time but like you know 
I love my favorite thing is finding like gems. Like I'd rather find go play Northwood, find a Northwood, than play like a a very good country club. It's just like there's something about those places that have this like character and and mystique and and you know it, it it's the optimist in me that sees you know this course could be really really cool. It is really cool as is, but it could be just unbelievable with like just a little bit of work. Um, so Northwood was was the course that I actually was the most excited to play, which yeah. is you know most people will say that's crazy and and leaving it leaving it. I mean, San Francisco golf was unbelievable, but like Northwood's the one that I have the, the most fond memories of of playing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of crazy how golf gets that way, but you know, Northwood, we played, so we played, we got there on, let's see, Monday night. We played on Tuesday. We played Lake Merced and, um, San Francisco golf Wednesday. We played Cal club and the nine holer at Olympic club mm-hmm. Thursday. We played, uh, Northwood and Meadow club Friday. We played Pasa Tiempo. So that was the only day we played only 18. Um, and then uh, Saturday we played the MPCC Dunes course and uh, and uh, Pacific Groves back nine. So was a uh, was a p- pretty crazy trip. And then I had to head home. And, I mean, I don't know how Zach plays a PGA Tour event after that. <laughs> that is a gauntlet of exceptionally, exceptionally good golf. So if you don't mind, can, can I pick your brain a little bit on a couple of the different courses that you played? For sure. Awesome, man. Okay, so uh, I guess I'll kind of go in order. With Lake Merced, what were your initial thoughts on Lake Merced? Because every time I've played it, I've always enjoyed it, but kind of along the same lines, I kind of see the potential that it could have, and I always wonder what it would be like if they actually put like a McKenzie restoration into it. I know you are, I, I think it would be safe to say that you are not the number one Reese Jones fan in, in the world of golf. Um, what, what were your thoughts on Lake Merced? Um, so I think what always goes through my head now since talking to Jim Urbina is he always, he always asks, he says the first thing he asks a club when they're looking at, at a restoration is how much do you embrace history? Mm. So for Lake Merced, you know, they had the, the highway come in and that was the first time they had to change from their Alistair McKenzie designed golf course. And they brought in, uh, I think it was Robert Muir Graves, I think, is who they brought in. Yeah, and, and Robert and Graves Graves had had some disturbing things he did to a few courses <laughs> <in> there. Um, <laughs> that is a very nice way to put it. So I mean that the that was the first big change, but then, you know, you you've got this beautiful plot of land. I mean it's the land still a, has some exceptional movement in it. I mean it it, it oh, really yeah. is a great, great piece of land. It's a little small, but it's got it's got a lot of potential, and you give it to uh, the open doctor, and like it's pretty. There's a lot of long walks between greens and tees. Um, there's deep bunkers with. There's a lot of artificial mounding that I mean, these are things that just drive me absolutely insane. Like, is like when you're standing on. Let's see the. Uh, there is the twelfth hole, the par three, right? Is that the one in the back corner of the? No, no, that would yeah. be number. 
Oh, yeah, okay. I, yes, the, the one that goes way, the big swale that goes down and then up again. Yeah. Yes. yes. So there, that's like a perfect example is like one of the greatest things that like Mackenzie did was they used other holes and the bunkers of other holes to deceive you from the tee. So like a bunker on another hole, you'll see, and it looks like it's pushed right up against the green mm-hmm. of this par three. But in actuality, it's like 400 yards away. Like Pasatiempo's fifth hole is a perfect example of that, where he dug out a bunker like in the hill of the the sixth hole, and it looks like it pushes right up against the back of the green. But at Lake Merced, what Reese did was he built this like artificial mounding in the back, and it, and I joked and called it Mount Merced. <laughs> um, but like if you cut the mounding down, you'd see three other greens right behind that green. And you could have bunkers from those greens look like they're on the backside of of this hole. But instead, it's just this mounding that closes it off and makes it its own little separate room. And there's, it it takes away like the sense of place. Interesting. Yeah. You know, that's something. Is it still a fun golf course? I I think it's still fun to play, uh, but I'm like, it's definitely like, that's like the thing is like, you know, I, I'm not, I, it's a very enjoyable, like I would, I enjoyed playing golf there. So it's not like I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just pointing out some things that bug me. Um, it's still like a really great place and like a place that like is a fine place to play every day. Yes. Uh, it just like you, you walk off it and you think, man, this could, this could be something pretty cool if they embraced their history and like went back and, and you, you know, like. You look around and it's like, you know, San Francisco golf is is a telling has. You got Olympic Club, which is a Willie Watson, and you could have a, a you you should have a McKenzie right there also. Well, it's crazy. Which, dude. There's so much golf in that one little spot because I mean, like you just said, I mean, Lake Merced and San Francisco Golf Club practically share a property line. I mean, I know there's like a couple houses and a street in between the two, but they're right next to each other. Olympic Clubs, all three of those courses are right across the street. And oh, by the way. The 2020 PGA Championship host TPC Harding Park is right there too. Like it's crazy how much golf is just in that little southwest pocket of San Francisco. It, it's it's wild. Yeah, it's it's nuts. It's I mean it's one of like the closest little corridors of great golf in the world. Yeah, yeah. Outside the Monterey Peninsula, I'm, I'm not sure there's anywhere in California that uh, that that can say the same thing. Um, yeah, I think uh, the Long Island would have their claim with uh, Shinnecock National, sure. Sabonic, and uh, Southampton all within. Like, I think they probably have a pretty <laughs> valid claim, <laughs> uh, which is great. Um, and it, I, I've never actually played San Francisco Golf Club. Obviously, I have plenty of friends who work or, or have played there. Um, as good as advertised? Yeah, that that place is so good. I it's the no weak holes. Um, you got to play. The strategy out there is just spectacular. The bunkering's great. Um, there's a clear line of play on every hole, and usually it's around a a bunker. So you know, playing right up alongside it. The bunkers are so well placed still today. Um, the green complexes are spectacular. Um, if that place, when I, it was a little soft when we played it, like firm and fast. I mean that. I don't know if there's a course in the world that I'd rather play that I've played that I'd rather play every day than San Francisco golf. Like it's wow. like the ultimate like play every single day type of course. 
That is that is the highest of compliments. I mean, that, that, I always think of a course as would I want to play it every day, uh, and if you say that that fits the build, then that is awesome. Um, yeah, and like to clarify, like there are courses that I'd rather play if I had one round. Sure, I'd rather play, but like from like a, a daily club, like it's an easy walk. Like the the holes have such variety, and they're so so strategically interesting and thought provoking. Like. Um, but like that, that from a day to day point, you know, place to play that, that one's uh, up there. Totally. Uh, all right, let's go to the next one. Now I just thought of this question and I, now I'm super curious to hear your thoughts cause I wasn't planning on asking you this, but, uh, you went to Cal club the next day, right? It, obviously Amy McCann, Alistair McKenzie, and now recently restored by Kyle Phillips. Um, for, first off, I'll just get your initial thoughts. Cause a lot of people are starting, there's starting to be a lot of buzz around the Bay area about how Cal Club might actually secretly be better uh, than Olympic and might be pretty close to on par with uh, San Francisco. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I really like Cal Club. I mean, the, the experience there is like top notch. They get all like the little tie-ins. The golf course is spectacular. Um, I, I really, I mean, Cal Club is a world-class place to get to play golf every day. Um, in terms of comparing it to San Francisco, I, I think it's like a notch below um, in terms of like just, you know, pure architecture and golf course. But like the conditioning out there, because they, they're, I think, the only club in the Bay Area that uses fescue fairways. Uh-huh. So it plays so much firmer and faster. Um, and that's a perfect example, like where I think like the architecture at San Francisco is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a notch above Cal Club. Mm-hmm. But the conditioning at Cal Club makes it like a close conversation because like that it's where like conditioning can make architecture better. Right. Mm -hmm. Because things play more as intended. And um, I mean, like San Francisco's in wonderful shape, but like that those fescue fairways that that they have at at Cal Club can play so firm and fast that it it brings a little bit more to the table from an architecture standpoint. But like. I think from a pure golf course, if you're just judging the architecture and the golf course, like San Francisco is, is a notch above it. Interesting. All right. So now, now this leads me into my, uh, my second question to the second part of a two part question on Cal club. And this is actually, this might be an idea for, for an article for you. Now, granted, if it really sucks, you can just tell me and you don't have to write on it at all. But this, this is something I, I thought about at one point and I think it'd be fascinating. So much like in uh, football or basketball, you're familiar with like coaching trees, right? You know, the great Bill Walsh had Mike Holmgren, Mike Shanahan, and all those guys teach under him. They went on to get head coaching jobs. And, you know, then those guys tutored other guys that are now, you know, head coaches in the league. Same thing with basketball, right? You got the uh, the Church of Popovich. You know, he's, you know, got on to Brett Brown in Philadelphia and you know, other guys of, you know, Popovich has tutored. Golf architecture oddly kind of has a similar thing going on, right? Where... Uh, yeah, obviously there was the old you know, Alistair McKenzie had you know a, a variety of different associates working with him, you know like the Robert Hunters, and then went on to do some stuff, and then they taught guys. And in the modern school of architecture, um, it kind of seems similar, right? You have obviously Renaissance Tom Doak, you know Gil Hans worked under Tom Doak, and then you have the younger guys, you know the Kyle Francis of the world, and everybody else who have taught on them that are now looking to make a name for themselves and do some designs. Well, there's this other spectrum of golf course architecture, most notably the the master of the urban development golf course, Mr. Robert Trent Jones Jr. And guys like Jay Blasey and Kyle Phillips somehow emerged from Robert Trent Jones Jr.'s 
tutelage to then create something like Jay did at Chambers Bay or most notably Kyle did at Cal Club. How how do you think that happened? And where I, I just I guess I'm so curious as to how guys, you know, the, the people that they learn from and once they get on their own, kind of how they transition into doing something different. Um, I don't know. Have you noticed anything in that regard when you look at architects and how their designs are influenced by the guys that they worked under to start their careers? Yeah, I I think that when you have a boss like anything, you there are things that you take from them and things that you think about that you would do differently. Yeah, because it's weird. Because with Kyle Phillips, some of his earlier designs, like uh, Granite Bay up in Sacramento, you could actually see, you know, a lot of you know fingerprints of RTJ two kind of on his designs. And as as he's continued to work uh, on, on his own, I, I've really kind of see him start to really develop kind of his own identity that's very very different from the robert trent jones junior school of architecture um especially like i I played king's barns right after it opened back when i was like 15 or 16 years old my dad yeah i got straight a's and my uh my reward was my dad was take took me on a a week-long golf trip to scotland yes i am probably one of the most spoiled children of all time i will acknowledge that right now but (laughs) when i got to go play king's barns that was one of my aha moments where i was like dude this is unbelievable who is this guy how old is this golf course and like, ah, it's yeah. like a year old. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. I knew nothing at the time, but I knew that what I had just played was spectacular. And it seems like King's Barnes and Cal Club, just in terms of using all the fescue and the design, it, it they're very comparable and they're both exceptional. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's important when you look at like RTJ2 stuff is like, you know, look at who the lead associate was on the project. Mm-hmm. Because like, that's who spent all the time on site who probably did the design work. And like a perfect example is Chambers Bay mm-hmm. was like, you know, Jay Blasey is the lead associate on that. So, you know, Jay was there day to day, did the design, worked mostly with the client and RTJ two would come in every once in a while for site visits. So, you know, it's something that's really important. And, and, and Tom talked about it a lot. is like having good people work for you. So I, I don't know like offhand all the projects that Kyle Phillips and Jay did for RTJ2, but I would guess that if you looked where they were the lead associate on, those are some of the best projects that RTJ2 has in their, in their portfolio. Um, so I, you know, like I think with Kyle, like, I mean, a lot of times like, you know, spreading, spreading your wings once you, once you get out from working for somebody, I mean, you take the best, like, I mean, like nobody can argue that RTJ two doesn't know how to run a business. Like, I mean, like, I think that's like an underrated part of architecture is, is knowing a, how to sell projects and also b how to run a business because you're, you have to do so many different things, um, beyond like designing golf courses. That's like, you know, 25% of their job. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, there's, there's benefits to working under those guys. Like there's stuff that they do really well, but then, you know, there's stuff that like Tom and Gil and Mike DeVries and Bill Coor do so well. And like, I think if you're going to talk about coaching trees and like architect trees, like the one you got to look at is Pete Dye. Pete Dye yes. led, you know, gave Doak, Bill Coor and Jim Urbina all their start in architecture. And I mean, that's pretty cool, cool because then you look at like Tom, Tom has, you know, Gil and Mike DeVries 
work for Tom at the start. So, you know, it all goes back to Pete Dye, who is the guy that changed. And, and the same thing goes for like, you know, the Great Depression and World War II, like caused a complete stop in in golf course architecture for the most part. Like Perry Maxwell did some courses, but like there was a giant stop in the exchange of ideas. So the thing is, so golf course architecture almost like started over in 1950 and you know there was all this new technology and uh nobody really knew how to use it best it wasn't like a slow development uh-huh. if that makes sense yeah absolutely uh yeah it's just kind of crazy I don't, I don't know have you, have you ever considered putting together a, an architect tree to see if you can trace back who who learned what from who and i don't know if you have yeah, but if you ever had the time i think that would be fascinating no no i'm working on it actually okay, with, awesome. uh, another architect who who uh who we've talked to about it uh, at length. So we, we've been working on that. It's something that hopefully will be done in the next uh, couple of weeks. Okay, and we will put a wrap on the first part of our interview with Andy right there. Uh, the second half of my interview with Andy Johnson from the Fried Egg will be available next week. Uh, so until then, uh, the only other bit of information that I think I have for you is if you live in Northern California and you enjoy saving a little money when you go play golf, I, I think going to visit golfguide.net would be an absolutely tremendous idea on your part. Uh, you don't even have to tell people that I'm the one that told you about it. But what I can tell you, that you therefore don't have to tell anybody else, is that you can save 20 to 70% off uh, greens fees at golf courses all over Northern California. we got a couple deals uh, up in the Tahoe area as well, a few courses in Southern California as well. But... You know, for the most part, just Northern California, golfguide.net. Visit the store and use the promo code GGPODCAST and save 10% off every purchase of $50 or more. Once again, that's promo code GGPODCAST when you purchase Golf Guide Play Certificates at golfguide.net. Ba-bang, that's it. We will see you next week with the second half of our interview with Andy Johnson from the Fried Egg. Mahalo!